Hey guys, it's Albert. We got a blockbuster show for you this week. We've got takeaways coming out of week 14. We've got a great special guest to talk about the state of quarterbacking in the NFL going into week 15. We've got your fantasy and DFS picks for this weekend presented by DraftKings and with Michael Fabiano. And as we always do, we get to all of your questions in the six pack. Let's go. All right, welcome in. Week 14 is in the books. Week 15 is here. We're in the stretch run of the 2020 NFL season. It's the Albert Breer Show. we got an awesome, awesome program coming for, for you today. A guest that's going to break down a couple of hottest players in football and take a look forward to 2021 for us at the game's most important position. We have Fabs in with his DraftKings segment, all of his DFS and fantasy picks with the playoffs going on. From a fantasy perspective, at least, in week 15. And, of course, we're going to answer all your questions in the six-pack. We're going to start where we always do with the takeaways. And my first takeaway, it involves everybody now, um, this one. And it involves where the league's going over the next month. And that's the subject of bubbles. We found out this week that the NFL is not going to allow teams to mandate playoff bubbles. Um, and I actually think it makes sense. Uh, I, the idea of having a national bubble, the idea of having a regional bubble, that was off the table and has been off the table for quite some time. National bubbles would take, I think, too much work. Regional bubbles like make some sense, but then you're talking about having to find practice facilities. You're talking about having to juggle the availability of fields. I just think that that would be too much. Local bubbles make some sense, okay? But I think one of the primary reasons why, well, a couple of the primary reasons why the NFL decided not to allow teams to mandate local bubbles for the playoffs and not mandate themselves um, local bubbles across the board for the playoffs um, really, I think, are pretty simple. The first one is the protocols, for the most part, are working. Now, they've had their outbreaks. Obviously, we had the Ravens situation recently. Um, a little further back, we had the Titans situation. But for the most part, what we've seen through three and a half months is that the NFL has been able to keep a lid on the virus. Um, and doesn't mean the season hasn't been wonky. The season has certainly been wonky. And there have been situations like the Ken Kendall Hinton situation in Denver, like Robert Griffin start in that midweek game for the Ravens against the Steelers. But for the most part, this season has gone, I think, about as well as we could have expected. And so and the first part is that what they see, um, the way that they're doing business right now, is working. Okay. Number two, I, I do think that there's, and we're going to dive more into this in a second, the issue of the player's mental health, the issue of the coach's mental health, and um, it wouldn't just be kind of locking them away in a hotel for a, up to a month. It'd also be, you know, an element, well, it's taking guys away from your family. It's also this element of, well, are we going to force guys to go back into their hotel rooms for meetings like we're doing now where guys have to go back home for meetings? There are all these different elements that I think create kind of what might be a, like a pretty miserable atmosphere for guys who've already been through a lot. Um, and then the third element, and I, I think this is an important one that people are overlooking, if you create these local bubbles, it takes a little while to establish them, right? Because you got to clear guys to enter them, and you got to make sure that there's no virus getting in. But if somehow the virus were to sneak into one of those local bubbles, right? 
now all of a sudden you've got everybody in the same building, everybody in somewhat close quarters, everybody around each other more, and you've got the virus in that environment. So now instead of the virus coming in just for practice, just for walkthrough, just for lifting, you'd have the virus entering a hotel where who knows what could happen. And somebody mentioned, somebody said to me a little earlier when I brought the idea of this up, I, like having a local bubble and the virus entering that local bubble, it would be like throwing a match on a dry haystack. It would just catch fire and it would be everywhere. And now all of a sudden you could have chaos in a playoff situation where if guys are going home on a day-to-day basis, somebody gets it, it's a little easier to contain it. There's a little less of a chance that it gets spread around. And so those three things I think come into play here. Uh, And I think they underscore also where we are going forward, where I, I think a lot of players are going to be looking at this going forward. And if next year looks anything like this, like if you have like restrictions on what guys can do, where guys can go in 2021, if you have empty stadiums in 2021, like if there's any sign that this year is going to be like flat, like 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 the next year is going to be like this year, I think it's going to have a profound effect on what happens with certain older players in the NFL. I think you could wind up having players who may want to continue to play deciding to retire. I think you could have guys who opted out this year just flat out not coming back. And so where this goes with the virus, I, I think is. We're getting close now to the point where it could trickle into the 2021 season. And I think the acknowledgement here of players' mental well-being and kind of where they are psychologically going into January, the 14 playoff teams, where they'll be psychologically going into January. Like to me, that that all is going to be part and parcel to how how this sets up going into 2021 because the ability of the... NFL to create the right environment for all those players, especially the older players, I think could determine who actually decides to come back for the 2021 season. Okay, takeaway number two, you know, we had the game of the year on Monday night, Ravens, Browns, people have made the comparison. I'll make it too. It felt a little bit like the 2018 game between the the Chiefs and the Rams at the Coliseum. Fantastic theater. You had Lamar coming out of the locker room. Coming back from God knows what he was doing back there. I know there's been some speculation on that to win the game. Uh, but my biggest takeaway from that, I think we knew the Ravens were capable of doing what they did. And I think we knew that Lamar was capable of doing what he did in that situation. And I think the Browns certainly could have done a better job defending him in that situation. Um, letting him, you know, letting him operate outside the pocket, letting him run the way he did. I think some of that's on the Browns. My biggest takeaway from from that night, though, my God, does it look like Baker Mayfield has come a long ways. And remember, this is coming off of perhaps his best game as a pro um, against the Tennessee Titans in Week 13. He's able to come back off of that and, again, build going forward. They were down 28-14, to very easily could have folded. That's a Ravens defense that's got a lot of really good players. It's a creative defensive scheme. It's a difficult defensive scheme to prepare for. And when you fall behind against those guys, you're going to see a lot of different looks. So very easily, when they fall behind by two touchdowns, it could have gotten in Baker's head. Instead, he leads them back to tie the game. And then when they fall behind again, 42-35, to very late in that game, he puts together a four-play, 75-yard drive. It's not like he, like, 
made any sort of like wow throw on that drive. It's just the way that he kind of commanded the game in that situation. I like I love where Baker Mayfield is right now and where he's been over the last two weeks. And we'll see how this goes over the next three weeks. But I think that there's great signs that maybe he's another one of these quarterbacks playing in a Shanahan-style system where you had kind of the reins on him early on. And then once you get closer to the end of year one and into year two, you start to see major jumps. So love where Baker Mayfield is. And it's going to be interesting now because the Browns have a very big decision to make on Baker Mayfield after this year. And this applies to all the 2018 draft quarterbacks where, you know, after like post year three sort of become the decision point for two different reasons. Number one, you have to make a decision on the fifth year option. Number two, there's now a lot of history of guys getting paid after year three, right? Like, so we saw it in 2019 with Carson Wentz and Jared Goff. We saw it this year with Deshaun Watson and Patrick Mahomes. And so you have to make the decision on the option, but also if you don't pay them after year three, then that sort of becomes a lingering storyline going into year four. And, you know, I think that like Josh Allen, and we're going to talk about him in a second. Josh Allen is probably in the position where he gets paid by Buffalo like the Jets would be in this position with Sam Darnold. They're going to probably wind up trading him. Like what does another team do with him? And now the Ravens and the Browns are both in this position where it's like, if you don't pay those guys going into year four, then it's a lingering storyline. So complicated offseason for the Browns and what to do with Baker Mayfield because of all of this, but man, some really, really good signs right now. Takeaway number three from week 14, the Buffalo bills are for real. And I, I know a lot of the focus is going to be on Josh Allen, and we're going to talk a lot on Josh Allen with our special guest here in a second. But that Bills team is about more than just the quarterback. They built such a strong roster and such a deep roster and such a balanced roster, and the culture's there, strong there. And this does not feel like a one-year thing to me. Um, it's great where they are. They've, they've gotten themselves, again, to 10 wins with three weeks left in the season, this is probably as good a Bills team as we've seen. I mean, maybe going all the way back to the Jim Kelly era, you know, maybe there's like, I guess you could look at maybe the 99 Bills team that, that had Doug Flutie, Wade Phillips as the coach. They made the switch to Rob Johnson. The Music City Miracle happened, but they're right in there. I mean, maybe the best Bills team in 25 years and just the way that they handled, I think it was a pressure situation playing at home on a Sunday night against the Steelers team that was coming in 11-1 and and coming off of a loss. Um, and they fall behind in that game, and they're able to battle back. I, like Tons and tons of respect for the way that the Bills handled themselves on Sunday night. And I think that they deserve to be in the, in the discussion now as maybe the top threat to the Chiefs in the AFC. And again, this is about like really good young players, like across the board in every position group, right? Like it's the running backs, Devin Singletary, and Zach Moss. It's the receivers. You've got a really, really good young receiver in Stephon Diggs who's going to be there for a while. Deion Dawkins at left tackle. He anchors the offensive line. Defensive line, you've got Ed Oliver up front. At linebacker, you've got Tremaine Edmonds. And then in the secondary, you've got Tredavious White. You've got like legitimate cornerstone players at every level of the team. The future's bright in Buffalo. They're really good now. They should continue to be good for, for, for quite some time to come. Takeaway number four, Matt LaFleur's not getting enough credit. I think he should be in the running for coach of the year. I think he's done 
I, I think like whatever your wildest expectations were for him coming into like him getting that job in 2019, he's exceeded them. And the numbers bear it out. They're 23 and six under the floor in the regular season, 24 and seven overall. The 23 wins, uh, it's the most wins over two years of a Packers coach ever. Like Mike Sherman had 21. I believe Mike McCarthy had 21. 23 is the most ever. It's like off the charts from like just what they've been able to do in two years. Like, and and he's going to have to back it up with playoff success at some point, but I don't think he's getting enough credit. I think he should be in the coach of the year discussion. And I think the job he's done with Aaron Rodgers is a huge piece of it. How do you make a guy who's been the best better? Like they've done it there. They've got him to buy into the system. They've expanded what they've been able to do. A lot of the question was, okay, like, well, what are you going to do with Aaron Rodgers as far as his control over the offense? This is something I talked with Matt about on Sunday night. They've given him more control, and that system calls for, in a lot of cases, two play calls, right? Like, So you go in, the quarterback sees one thing, sees another thing, says we're going with either this play or that play. They've expanded that now to where there's three play calls off of single play calls, and the system really has wound up fitting Aaron Rodgers, and it's shown in his numbers. His passer rating, 119.7. His touchdown pass numbers, 39. Those two are the best in the league. His touchdown to interception ratio is almost 10 to 1. That's also best in the league. Aaron Rodgers deserves MVP consideration. He's making that year two jump that we talked about with Baker and the Shanahan offense. We saw Matt LaFleur was, was there in Atlanta when it happened with Matt Ryan, and he won the MVP and took the Falcons to the Super Bowl in his second year in the offense. We saw it with Jared Goff in L.A. playing for Sean McVay in year two of the offense. The Rams go to the Super Bowl, and right now we are seeing it with Aaron Rodgers. Again, it's on a different level than it is with Baker. Baker's a second-year player. Aaron Rodgers, or a third-year player now, Aaron Rodgers is going into his, or is in his 16th year in the league. But you see the year one where the reins are on a little bit, and now you can see Matt LaFleur letting him go and letting Aaron Rodgers really play. And I just think the Packers are in a really good spot right now. And with the Saints loss on Sunday, in position to get home field in the NFC playoff bracket. And one thing I think that you all need to be paying attention to, Lambeau Field, in the like, imagine this environment in the playoffs, right? It's 10 below. It's dark. The stands are empty. That's going to be a very, very difficult place. Maybe even more so than if there were fans in the stand. That's going to be a very, very place for a visiting team to come in and perform. And so if they're able to get the bye and they're able to get home field through the playoffs, I think it's going to be very tough to beat the Green Bay Packers in that environment if you're another team coming in. Takeaway number five. It's going to sound like a weird thing, like with the Saints coming off of a loss. Sean Payton can take a bow for the job that he's done with backup quarterbacks over the last two years. Sunday against the Eagles was his first loss with a backup quarterback over the last two years. He is now 8-1 and one with backups playing at the game's most important position. He's done it with two different quarterbacks now. Last year it was Teddy Bridgewater. This year it's Taysom Hill. So Sean Payton can take a bow for the job that he's done with both Teddy Bridgewater and Taysom Hill. And that said, I think they got to consider consider putting Jameis in this week if things go poorly early in that game against the Kansas City Chiefs. They host the Chiefs game of the week in the Superdome, 425 on Sunday. 
This is an important game for the Saints. It could help determine home field, keeps them in the race for home field at the very least. Uh, they don't have the tiebreaker um, with the Packers, and that's a problem for them. Packers beat them. They don't have the, they don't have that tiebreaker. So I don't think they need to give themselves every chance to try and get that tiebreaker. If things do not, if things go off the rails early, knowing you're probably going to be getting Drew Brees back in Week 16, if things don't go well early. I think you need to stop worrying about Taysom Hill's confidence. I think you need to stop worrying about where his psyche is. I think you stop need to stop worrying about where maybe he is going in 2021 and just concern yourself with the here and now. And so if Taysom doesn't play well early and the Chiefs jump out to a 10-0, a 14-0 lead, I think that they need to consider and they need to at least consider the idea of putting Jameis Winston in there to do everything they can to win that game and keep themselves in the race for the number one seed in the AFC. All right, that's my five takeaways coming off of week 14. Now going into week 15, we're going to bring you our special guest right after this. All right, well, now we're going to welcome back one of our favorite guests. We haven't had him here in a little while. It's been a few months at least. Uh, And I thought the timing was great because he is the personal quarterback's coach of one of the hottest quarterbacks in the NFL right now and always gives us a great like 30,000 foot view of the position in the NFL and what's coming next. And so we're going to welcome back in Jordan Palmer. Jordan, what's going on? How you doing, man? Thanks for having me. Good, good. All right. Well, I, I want to start with Josh and to those who don't know, Jordan, again, is the, uh, is the, the, the personal throwing coach of Josh Allen. And uh, I want to start here by kind of like winding the clock back because I know you and I had kind of talked about it after the way he played against San Francisco and obviously um, against Pittsburgh. Maybe it wasn't as perfect, but he showed some good resilience. Um, you know, it really feels, Jordan, like he's sort of starting to establish himself in the upper echelon in the NFL. And there were a lot of people um, going back to 2018 that thought that this was unlikely or maybe thought it wasn't even possible um, that he'd get to this level. And, and I still remember like you talking very highly of him going all the way back to, to, to then. Um, what have you seen? What, what did you see in him back then that maybe other people didn't? And what do you think needed to be developed that has been developed? Well, I, I think there's some some things that are uh, just kind of obvious, and anybody would have saw it. I mean, come, when he was coming out of college, like I, I'm the, I was the first to say, like, I mean, I think he completed fifty something percent of his passes, and um, you know, accuracy was was an issue for sure. And so, like that stuff, that was all there, um, and I I see that. Um, but he was also six five, two forty, super fast, crazy arm talent, like. It was, a, I mean, if he's a ball of clay, he's like the biggest, coolest looking one I've seen, you know? Um, and, and then you, as you get to know him, you go, man, this guy's like all in, like, you know, super hard working, super tough. And then you kind of hang out with him, right? You go, this guy's a magnet. Everybody loves this guy. He's hilarious. He's got every movie quote memorized. You know what I mean? And says inappropriate stuff that's hilarious at the perfect time. And it was just, it was just kind of like, oh, yeah, I think I love all these things. And, uh, and then the the part where once I started working with him, I realized just how coachable he is, um, how uh, it takes a certain level of humility to be coachable. Um, you can't be coachable and believe that you're already doing everything the right way. Those those feelings don't exist in the same space. So, you know, he's got enough humility, but he's got a ton of confidence and thinks he's awesome. So it was just like, I don't know, it was all there. 
Um, I think it just needed to be packaged up and organized. And then it needed to go, he, that package needed to arrive on the doorstep of a franchise that was ready to build around it. And he, he, that, that package landed there. Do you like, uh, like what made you think that you could like, what, 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 wherever the issues were, what made you think that you could fix it? Cause you do hear that a lot, right? Like that accuracy is something that's very hard to correct. Right. Like, and that, you know, sometimes a guy comes out of college and he has a certain amount of reps and sort of becomes what he, what, what, what he's going to be. Uh, what made you think that like, what was wrong with him at the time in 2018 could be made right? Um, well, I, I definitely don't, um, I don't project a lot of like what I think people are going to do because I, mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, we could work on something, me and another quarterback can work on something for, you know, months or years. And I, I still don't know how that's going to translate on the field. No idea. Um, and, but I will say that the, I also, I don't look at it like things are broken or wrong. I, I just look at it like, where are the inefficiencies? Where's the things that, that you can do more consistent? What's the things you can get better at? And then how can you do it more consistently? And so with Josh, it was, you know, it was really simple things in college. He was bouncing on his toes with a narrow base. And then as a big, strong, powerful guy, every time he'd try and rip it, he'd overstride. And when you overstride, pretty much any quarterback coach could tell you the cascade of effect of overstriding and all the different issues that it can come up. And so what's really hard to do when you overstride and step too far when you're throwing is have your body do the same thing over and over again. It's hard to. Every time you step, you step in a different distance. It's hard to have your arm go through the same space every time. So fixing the base, like I, I couldn't have told you how long it was going to take, or but it, I knew it was kind of the thing to do, and he did too. And he's really talented, and he works really hard, and he's really coordinated and athletic. So that happened really quick. By the time his rookie year started, he was playing with a great base. And the, you know, it was a different theme going into his second offseason. The theme this last offseason was control of the ball and putting different positions to be able to control the ball and getting the actual sequence, the kinematic sequence that uh, Chris Collinsworth was talking about when he referenced our work on Sunday night. And like, so those are the things I, I still don't know how it's going to translate. I, I certainly didn't tell you in July that he was going to complete 70% of his passes, but you just got to think that if you take a really good player and you eliminate inefficiencies and you take the good things that they do and, and they, they start doing them more consistently, like, yeah, the, the product's going to be great. But again, you do that with a player and it really, it's still dependent on the environment that they're in, the situation, the play caller, the talent, the personnel, like it's still, those things still matter. And so he's just in the, he's been doing the right things with his staff there on his own and he's in the right place and it's the right time. I, I want to get to that too. Like, like the, the situation in Buffalo, but I it's sort of interesting, like kind of the way you set that up, like how much of it do you think with a guy like that is just that he's always like maybe through high school and college, he was always maybe able to just get away with whatever, like because he is such a big talented athlete because he has such a big arm, like, and you've worked with a ton of guys now, like how much of it with a guy like that, do you think it's just the fact that, you know, maybe in high school and college, it was good enough. Like, like it was good enough to just kind of lean back on your physical ability. And if you were, say, overstriding into your throws, that was something you could get away with. You know what's funny about that is, like, I think for everyone else, I, I would have just, for anybody else, that I would have just, like, answered the question. But for him, I'll say, it wasn't good enough before. He didn't even get an offer out of high school. Yeah. And then the only reason he got an offer out of JUCO was because the coach was there to recruit a defensive player on the other team and saw Josh. And then 
it wasn't good enough at Wyoming. He never won a championship. Right. Like he never even took over and dominated a game in college. Literally. There's not one game where he rushed for a hundred yards and threw for 300 and you go, well, well, yeah, which quarterbacks do that? I don't know, but he was playing at Wyoming and he's like at an MVP level in the NFL three years later. Like you would think that he dominated in college. He didn't. So this really is like the growth is not just from year one to year three. It's where he was in college. Um, I don't know if he ever won the games versus when they played big teams, you know, like it wasn't, he got drafted off of talent and ability and what he could be. And um, it's just, I think even after everyone saw his pro day and all stuff, we all, and myself included, still underestimated just how talented, like his talent is like just, it's not just the strong arm. He can spin it and control it too. And it's not that he's a good runner. It's that he's, I think one of the better runners. Um, And so it's just, I think, I think, it was easy because of the inaccuracy it was easy to not appreciate what was there and um what what terry and kim pagula and i start at the top um did with brandon bean and brandon bean's first real move was that um and then the brian being you know brian dayball being there and then bringing in ken dorsey and just the way that they've built around him um to take that really talented ball of clay and develop them and Sure, give him creative space in the offseason to, to go and seek and try and get better at things. And there's a tiny role in there for our time together, but it's really what the Bills have been doing. I mean, I'm being honest. Like, it's the situation they're in, what they put him in, the people they put around him, and um, and he's just completely taking advantage of it, which is, I mean, you got to strike when the iron's hot, and he's doing that. So going back to what you said before, so it was just a matter of up until like he did start to make the change. It was like he didn't know what he didn't know, right? Like that's what you're saying. Totally. Like it wasn't so much he was able to get away with it. It was he maybe didn't have the answers to the test at that point. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. almost like what should I be working on? And then no right. one answers. So yeah. like I just keep throwing, I guess. You know, I see that all the time <laughs> with kids. Right. Um and he's not, and he's not the first NF guy get, that I did draft training with. It was similar to Blake Bortles, mm-hmm. you know. Like they never really had a quarterback that got really went that high, and they, that was the first success that schools ever really had on that level. And they kind of ran pro style, and you know. And so doing draft training, it's like I'm really sure which questions to ask, you know. And it's it's not an indictment on the player. It's just what have they been exposed to to this point? And those aren't bad programs. I mean, Blake won the Fiesta Bowl, right? You know, amazing year like and went third overall and um but it but it had never really had a private quarterback coach before and so um and and with josh like again those both those guys went top seven and blake going into a situation where he's got all these different coordinators and different coaches and different situations and all that stuff and josh going into a situation that is just like the g the people they put around him and and they just did it on the perfect kid uh, the perfect kid for that situation for buffalo new york for that fan base cold weather blue collar tough like it's just there is if there's a blueprint here for drafting quarterbacks i think people spend too much time evaluating the quarterback and not evaluating their own like team wise like what is the current state of the team and what what do we need here what can we actually take and influence and make better i think organizations look for quarterbacks to come in and save the franchise as opposed to even seeing if they're in a position to be saved. Right. And part of it is like, I mean, like part of it, like might be just the situation itself, kind of how it, 
how it relates to the kid. Like, like you mentioned Buffalo being sort of small town feel, right? Like, well, that's where he's from. So that's sort of interesting too. What, what do you think there was specifically in Buffalo? Like, I mean, I think it's, it's obvious. Everybody think like it's good, important to have good players around you. It's good, important to have good coaches around you. It's important to have good ownership. Like when you look at that situation now, like what actual specifics are there that have made that such a good situation for Josh other than, you know, what would benefit every quarterback? Yeah. So I, I think I've talked about with you about this before mm-hmm. when it, when it comes to like evaluating quarterbacks or why I think the quarterbacks who play well early, why they do. I always talk about two things. I talk about confidence and I talk about maturity mm-hmm. before arm talent, before height and weight, you know, winning record championships, all that. Like it's just confidence and maturity. And if you're not really confident and really mature, I just don't see guys that aren't that play well early. Right. I don't see it. They may get lucky and have a good game, but like they're not, they're not balling. Right. And, and guys that are really confident and really mature, but may lack certain things. I go, man, well, he's going to be fine. Right. <clears throat> like, I don't care what Joe Burrow isn't. He's those two things so much that he, every time he plays, he's probably going to play well. Right. So, so that's what I always believe about quarterbacks. When it talk about ownership, because, I love what you like. I love the question and it with the bills, it, you have to start at the top of ownership. And when you look at what Terry and Kim Baglou have done there, um, it's not just, jo- you know, Josh Allen and he's the small town and he's perfect. Cause he's blue. Co- it's not just that it's, I think ownership, the right ownership. And this isn't what I think they should do. I'm just looking around at what people have been doing and just watching. And I think, great owners when it comes to getting their young quarterback and doing it right they do two things now there's a couple teams that have done this so far kansas city has done this the rams have done this the ravens have done this in the the last few years Mm -hmm. and buffalo has done this now cleveland has not done this i think i think baker's balling and i think they're in a good spot right now but it took three scary years to get there Mm -hmm. and multiple coaches and all kinds of stuff. So there's a couple of teams and I might've missed one, but there's a couple of teams where they got the right quarterback for the right situation. They built around him, the coach, the genius, you know what I mean? Les Snead, right. Sean McVay, all the wideouts. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, that's just a really good situation in Los Angeles. They were in the Super they Bowl two years for ago. Him is what you're saying. Almost, they got, right? they like got they the quarterback at the him. right time and they built around the, the quarterback that, that fits them. Right, mm-hmm. Buffalo. So what the re, the way that you do it, I think, is it's you're going to be measured by two things: it's decisions and commitments. It's the decisions of the people that you hire, sure, the quarterback you draft and the GM you pick, and the personnel department that he puts together, and the coach and the coaching staff. So those are those are the decisions, right? Do you, and then also the power structure: who's making what decisions? That gets screwed up all the time. People whiff on that one all the time. Right. And so on the decisions, also the decision is what is your philosophy as an organization? Are you going to go spend in free agency or are you going to draft and develop and invest money in coaching staff to make sure the players get developed? Like what's your philosophy? And so those are the decisions that ownership, I think, gets measured by. And the teams that I mentioned who right now have the young quarterback who's the perfect fit, they're building around nicely and they're in it. Um, that's what they've done. They've made great decisions and you can go through Kansas city and, you know, person by person, right. From free agents to coaches mm-hmm. to all of it. Right. And then the second thing is commitments. How 
long do they honor those commitments? Because you can honor a commitment. There's three ways you can honor a commitment. You can honor, you can not honor it long enough. Like you can get out of something too early and miss. Mm-hmm. You can honor something too long. You can give somebody way too many chances and you can whiff or you can do it the appropriate amount. And I just think these billionaire owners who are running these organizations and, and want to win, they have to make good decisions and they have to make, you know, and, and honor the right commitments. And so I look at Buffalo right now, the situation that Josh is in, the GM just got a contract. The head coach just got a contract. The quarterback's going to get a contract in the offseason. They just brought in a wide out. He's got years left on this contract. They just pit lock up the corner. Young, young, talented corner. Like, you know what I mean? Tremaine Evans yeah. is coming up too. Like, they just, they bring in Brian Dable and then Ken Dorsey. And if they lose Dable, they're going to be in a position where they're going to have, they could choose between Ken Dorsey and they could choose between a lot of great options of people who'd want to come in there and, and coach that kid. Right. So, like, even if they lose Dable, that'll, that'll hurt, but they're going to be in a great position to make a yeah. great decision. Yeah, and it's so interesting too because it's like I, I know a bunch of them that you mentioned, like they were sort of built up before. I've made this point, like, but if you look at like, like Deshaun Watson was drafted in Bill O'Brien's fourth year, um, Patrick Mahomes was drafted in Andy Reid's fifth year, uh, John Harbaugh had been there forever when Lamar Jackson got to Baltimore. Uh, you look a lot of these Jordan, and it's like they're not like it's not the and even in Buffalo, like Sean McDermott and Brandon Bean had like a year to lay the foundation in Buffalo before Josh came in, right? And I almost feel like that's healthier than just coming in and drafting a guy right away. You know what I mean? Like it just it feels like when a guy, when a quarterback's coming into like a little bit more of an established situation, now you don't have to ask the world of him, which I I think would be ideal, right? I would think so. Yeah, I think that you know, once having just the flow of a draft and how it works and the process and the order of operations and especially as you know, as plans change with COVID and procedures change and how, like how they're going to do the draft this year, how they're going to do the combine, how are we going to do pro days this year? Like all of, like, is there going to be a senior bowl? There's not going to be a shrine game now. Like just all the things that go into drafting, just drafting. Cause that's just one little part of those guys' jobs. Right. Right. All the things that go into drafting, like experience is huge. And so, you know, I, I think if, if you look at a team like the jets, if they go new quarterback and new head coach, which is a likely scenario, Mm-hmm. Um, that's a lot of new. You look at Chicago. Like, are they going to go new head coach, new GM, and new quarterback? Right. Same question for Detroit. You're already going new head coach, new new GM. Are you going to go new quarterback too? So there's just these different spots where a, a lot of change at the same time. Yeah, you could hit it all right, but you're going to be measured off of decisions and off commitments. And there are teams doing it well. There's not a shortage of good quarterbacks entering the league. There's just a shortage of good, good quarterbacks going to situations where these organizations do what I just said. Right. Okay. One last thing on Josh, and then I want to kind of get through a couple other topics, and we'll let you go. Um, where does Josh go from here? Like, you know, because it, like, you know, you guys have obviously made a lot of progress over his first three years. Do you already see some things that you want to tweak, that you want to work on, and how much better can Josh get? Because I know. You know, because of his physical ability, when he came into the league, he was sort of sold as this guy. And similar to Mahomes, I guess, right? Like, and that there's this unlimited ceiling there. Uh, where's Where's the next step for Josh's game? Uh, I mean, winning, winning a Super Bowl, and, and that's not just like a, you know, win a Super Bowl comment. It's like doing this when it's all on the line. 
Mm-hmm. He doesn't have any high school or college experience that's prepared from what from what he him for what he's doing right now. None. Neither does Mahomes, though. It's not like Mahomes was a national champion right. in college. Deshaun Watson does. Trevor Lawrence does. Baker Mayfield played in some playoff games, right? Jake Fromm played in some playoff games, right? So my point is like every like Josh is in new territory. He has been for a little bit now. Really since the 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 Thanksgiving game last year on primetime in Dallas, got a big win and kind of like that was the first real primetime game where he played well, you know? Mm-hmm. Maybe the first primetime game. And uh so everything from here is new. And so it's about handling I, when I talk about confidence and maturity, one of the things about maturity is handling situations that you've never been in before as if you've been in them before. Mm-hmm. So Josh or Joe Burrow last year, that run at LSU that he had, you know, in the each week he got better and then how he, the Heisman speech and then the, you know, the way he handled the media and all the stuff and then the draft and like, that just makes sense why he played so well because all of that stuff was new for him and he just kind of looked like it was his third time doing just very mature. Mm-hmm. And so with Josh, it's the maturity side of it is continuing to elevate his maturity level where, you know, he just had back-to-back primetime games, had big wins, played great. Um, he's got to go now on a short week and now you got to go and get a win and be, you know, be mature, but like get a win in, in Denver. And then they're going to play Miami the week 17 and, we'll see how the playoff picture looks. I mean, playing against each other, you know, in the playoffs. So it's just one of those, like how he handles it before, like the next step is like, go win one, you know, like the next step is not MVP. It doesn't have to go that order just because that's Pat's order and Lamar's potential order. No, this is like, go win one. And Mm -hmm. when it's all comes down to it, play an entire game from start to finish where you control your mind in terms of locked in on every play where you control the ball where you don't barely overthrow that guy. You don't miss just barely behind him because of, but no, you're in complete control of the ball. And then most importantly, you're in control of your emotions. Josh and a lot of quarterbacks, they can want it so bad that they take a sack that they shouldn't have taken. And they take an extra hit on the sideline that they shouldn't have taken. And they maybe throw a pick or a ball gets batted down because they wanted it so bad they tried to make a play. And so being in control of your emotions and Josh is in all three of those areas is getting better each week. And so the next step for him is to do that for another month and change, do it all the way till February. Um, and then we'll revisit everything from there. Yeah. It's fascinating. Cause I, I remember hearing Nick Saban use the word unaffected, like the best players are unaffected by everything that goes on around him. And I think he used that with Julio with the Falcons before the Falcons traded up to get him. And I just think I always think that that part's fascinating because it's like, you know, it's not it's maybe not the person who elevates it's the person who stays the same when they get into those big spots. So I did want to ask you about like a couple of your other clients as you brought the names up and kind of the next steps for them because they're facing a little adversity now. What do you think the next steps are for Joe Burrow and Sam Darnold? Um, with Joe, I think it's how do you pick up where you left off and. Um, I think now that he's played a handful of games and understands what it takes to win in the league, um, I think it's him and the Bengals starting to build this thing around what's a champion. I mean, Joe is a champion. He's won championships. And no, he hasn't won them in the NFL, but he's going to know a lot about. And I, I, I really hope the Bengals are open to his feedback and input to some extent on you know, how they should build that culture there. Um, they're obviously all in on this kid. And so... Um, to bypass that and try and build it their way would, I think, be a miss. And so my hope is for Joe to this offseason 
be able to have some input on on how they they move this thing. I don't think they need to to turn it around. I think they already started turning it around. I think that now it's about you know really laying the foundation for building a championship there. I, I can speak. I don't speak on behalf of Joe Burrow, but I can I can tell you this. I think he thinks that they can win. They can win there. Like they can win. Yeah. They can build a championship team there. I don't think he gives two craps about what they've been in the past and what he's heard about. I think Joe thinks that they can win every game that he's playing in. And the best quarterbacks in the league believe that about themselves. The best quarterbacks believe that every Sunday, like they're going to win because they have them. Mm -hmm. That is one of the common denominators. And Joe is in that group for sure. And so, you know, I think that's really what's next for him. Whatever the timetable is on rehab, he'll be ahead of it. Like he's just, you know, he's a worker. He's all in. Like, so if they say seven months, he'll be back in six, like whatever, whatever that is, like, that'll just be normal. Just like when my brother did it, you know, just yeah. like when Deshaun tore his ACL, just come back better than they were because they're competitors and they're all in. Um, and then with Sam Darnold, I, I don't know. We'll see how this, this um, season ends. Seems to be getting worse every week. Um, the thing that I can tell you is um, there's a massive gap between him and Josh in terms of how successful their seasons have gone. Right. There's not a there's not a big gap between them as quarterbacks. It, it, it's case in point just shows you the situations that you're in. And so I do believe that whether it's with the Jets or somewhere else, there will be a time in the very near future where Sam is one of the best young quarterbacks in this league, and he's respected across the board like that. Just like he was across the board, pretty much everybody liked him coming into the draft. There, I don't really remember people saying he was going to be a bust. You know, really anybody. Yeah, no one. I mean, he was the safe one. Yeah, he was the safe one, and right. so it just shows you. Right, um, that uh, it's it's very indicative of the situation that you're in. And Sam's 23. I mean, he's younger than Burrow, which think is about crazy that. to think about. It's but crazy. That, yeah, yeah. It's his third year in the league. So, like, to to go, oh, here's what here's the final consensus on Sam Darnold after his third season in the Jets. I just think anybody who's going to say that is an idiot, and they have no idea what they're talking about because none of the best quarterbacks in the league started really balling until later in their career. It takes a little bit to get going here. And congratulations to Patrick and Lamar on winning winning MVPs in their second years. But they're in those perfect spots that I told you about. Right. And Sam's not. And it's only a matter of time until whether the Joe Douglas and the Jets can build it the right way around him or they take Trevor Lawrence and move on from Sam and Sam goes somewhere else and gets a chance to have a fresh start. Either way, I think in the near future, Sam is going to be regarded. Save this episode, December 15th, 2020. In the very near future, people across the board will have Sam as a consensus, one of the best young quarterbacks in this league. It's just going to be indicative of the situation. It's going to be interesting, too, because if they do decide to move on and take Trevor Lawrence, which I think is sort of the expectation now, I think what you're going to see across the NFL is a lot of the evaluators going back to what they had, what they thought of him in 2018. And I think you could see teams like like a Denver, like a, like a San Francisco, that really liked him coming out in 2018 saying this is worth throwing a couple draft picks to go and get them. Mm -hmm. I agree. I think there's gonna be a big market for him and um, the worse he plays or the worse they play or whatever, the, you know, um, I think in the, end, in the end, it could end up being a good thing for him down the road because if he gets traded somewhere, um, you know, the difference would be in for a first round pick or a second round pick or a handful of pick, like, that is just good for the new place that he's going. So it'll be interesting to see if the Jets want to do that, what the market is, and you know, at the same time, I I, I don't I don't know enough, and I'm not. I haven't had a single conversation with Sam about it. He's focused on each week, 
he's he's amazing at compartmentalizing and he's not thinking about anything other than trying to get a win this weekend so um yeah i'm just kind of a fan on this one looking at it going god he's a great kid he's a great talent and um i hope joe either joe douglas gets you know if they move on from gates that joe douglas builds this thing the right way from the you know coach moving around and because they've hit on some picks i mean i think mckay beckson's really good and you know they, they've made some good moves um but uh, they're a ways away from, from being com- uh, competitive. And I just think it's, you know, Sam is the type of player, if you put him in a, a situation where he's at least, at, you know, on par with other guys, um, he's going to really be able to show what he can do. And, and what he can do is, is, uh, is up there with a lot of the, the best players in the league. Yeah, I'd love to see him, like, with a Frank Reich or a Kyle Shanahan or somebody like that. It'd be really interesting. Um, all right, so we're, we are coming off, I mean, maybe – the game of the year. I think maybe this ver- year's version of what we had with Chiefs Rams at the Coliseum a couple of years ago, um, with the Ravens just sneaking by the Browns. Long field goal by Justin Tucker wins that one. And of course, you got the two quarterbacks from 2018. We've already talked about Sam and Josh. Well, you know, two of the others that went in the first round were first pick of the first round, last pick of the first round. We're on display in year three. What was your big takeaway from 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 Monday night's Ravens Browns game? Um, I feel like I learned a lot about Baker and I didn't learn anything about Lamar and the irony <laughs> is that Lamar won yeah. starting with Lamar. Um, I think, uh, I'm a huge fan of him. I think he's the most exciting player to watch in the league for me. Um, but the evolution of his game will be his ability to control the football moving forward. A lot of like the step that Josh took this last year, um, is there for Lamar to take. And I, and I say that even on his completions, it's just a little inaccurate. And then, right. you know, he missed a couple throws the other night. A lot of guys miss some deep balls every now and then, so I'm not knocking that. But just the the consistent inaccuracy was just a little low, a little behind the guy. And so Lamar winning with a heroic fourth down play and ripping a huge run, I, I would expect him to do those things. Right. I just don't – I think if they played the Browns five times, they'd win one. Because you just can't – that's not a recipe for winning. Mm-hmm you got to be able to drop back on third and eight and complete ball. Like you just, it's case in point. They've got knocked out of the playoffs two years in a row right away. And, and the other thing is they're not, we all, people always say they're not built to, um, to come from behind. Well, okay. If that's true, then that's because they are built to do things like protect a 14 point lead in the third quarter, which they didn't do. So I, I think I didn't learn a ton about the Ravens. They can run the ball really well. They can make plays on defense. Their quarterback is electric. Even when he's in a game where he slips and falls a half a dozen times, he still rushes for over 100 yards and breaks the game open. But I, but until I, that, that, but that's what that's all he did. You know what I mean? Right. And in terms of Baker, I think what I learned is he's all I've I didn't I didn't learn that he's got confidence in himself. He's always had that. And that's mm-hmm. one of the reasons why he's as good as he is. Um, but I learned that the play caller and um, the entire offense, that, te- that team really has confidence in him. Like they, their confidence for him matches his own. And that's a really good ingredient. Um, the other thing is, is I think confidence and maturity. I saw a lot of maturity last night and how he handled different situations. There was one in particular. It was third and eight. Um, and they're down 14. And he, uh, uh, he's kind of trying to get outside, break contain, and he just gets outside the defensive end, and he gets only gets like four yards. 
Now, in that situation, a lot of guys, because they're not going to be able to get the edge and get upfield, they usually like to throw that ball away. Yeah. But he was able to get a piece back. And so just the presence of mind to know that they're in four, four down territory because they're down 14 in the second half and to try and get a couple yards because they got he got to fourth and four. That's different than fourth and eight. I don't think they go right. for it on fourth and eight. They, go, they went for it on fourth and four. Now on fourth and four, he drops back, he's got pressure, and he moves to his right. And then he all the end comes up field and he slides up in the pocket. And if you freeze it, he could totally run for the first down. You know, just it's right there in front I of him. I remember that play. Run. Yeah, it was it was wide open. Yeah. And instead he rips it in the back of the end zone for a touchdown. So the comp the maturity to get a piece back on third and eight, and then the confidence to not scramble and dive for five yards on fourth and four, but to risk a turnover on downs, a drop ball, it slips, DB makes a play. No, he just ripped it. So the confidence to do that and then the maturity of how to handle the situation, get a piece back on third and eight. I just look at that and I go, man, I learned that he's getting a lot more mature. I don't know him personally really well, so I, I'm making assumptions that he's matured a lot off the field over the last mm-hmm. year or two. I think that's a general consensus uh, is observation by everybody, but it's showing up on the field now too. And so if they're going to run the ball the way that they can and play defense the way that they can, and if he's going to play as confident as he always has, but he's going to play mature and protect the football, um, this team can win in the playoffs in, a, in the way that I don't think the Ravens can. It's Even really the interesting. Ravens won last night. It feels like, like what you're saying is he's able to do the calculation in his head, right? Like it's like, all right, like I know it's third down, so I'm going to get a piece back here. And then I know I can easily pick up the first down and fourth down, but there's a good enough chance that I can get the ball to that guy in the end zone. I'm just going to throw it, right? So it's like almost like you're playing the percentages in your head, and that's what you're talking about with maturity, right? It's like understanding kind of your surroundings and understanding like this versus this and being able to make those decisions when the heat's really on. Yeah. Um, playing quarterback. I mean, doing it yeah. at a <laughs> – yeah franchise quarterback level i mean if you have a guy that does that week in week out then you pay him a bunch of money right what like one last thing on baker you you, i i noticed you mentioned you can see the confidence from his teammates like how did you see that like how is that how is that something you could see through the tv um i think uh from a play calling standpoint that i just don't when i watch the browns i don't feel like they're they're protecting their quarterback from bad situations Mm mm-hmm they're allowing him to play to play it and manage it, you know? Um, and then from a, a player perspective, you can, I don't know if you hear it through TV as much as see it through TV as much as, um, you know, he's, when you, when you give on third and these tough situations, you give guys like Juice Landry, like a back shoulder, give him a chance mm-hmm. to go make a play and you actually drop a dime. The trust that they have in you, not that you're going to check it down when the game's on the line, that you're going to rip it and be aggressive and be accurate. I mean, I just these guys gravitate towards that. That's, okay, that's as addictive as any is any drug is when you have a when you have for a team when their quarterback when they know when it all comes down to the line that he's going to continue to deal and he's going to be confident in that situation. Everybody clings to that thing, and there's just guys that, and you know, it's what happens in New England. They're happening for, for twenty years in New England, and it's happening in New Orleans, and you hear about it with Deshaun Watson. You certainly hear about it in Seattle, where. When this guy gets a chance to win the game at the end, every everybody believes that he can. Okay, yeah, that's really interesting. All right, before we let and you go, and think about it like this: that two-minute yeah. drive that they had in Cincinnati earlier 
we just with no time left drove the length of the field drops a dime that a huge win versus the Bengals and an amazing comeback right like what when you've done it before everybody believes you can do it again right it's the first time that's hard yeah but if well, we it's funny because you mentioned the like Bengals. we've done this before fellas like and everybody believes it yeah, you mentioned that. But like, it was funny because when you brought that up, I was thinking of Joe. <laughs> you know what I mean? When you said in Cincinnati, I didn't think you were talking about Baker. I think you were talking about Joe because there was the the situation with Joe and this first NFL game. Like he drives them down and they didn't win, but he in essence threw the game winning touchdown. The flag goes. The, the flag ninety two yards, one touch, one timeout. He his first start. He drives right. ninety two yards and throws a game winning touchdown. Yeah, it was a push off, and then the guy misses a field goal. But like as far as what Joe Burrow. You drove 92 yards with one timeout. <laughs> right. Right. All right. Last thing for you then, and we'll let you go. We appreciate all the time, Jordan. Um, so there are a bunch of games this weekend that NFL fans are going to be watching on the college stage. And we know who the obvious ones are, right? Like, so people are going to be tuning in to watch Justin Fields play for Ohio State against Northwestern. People are going to be tuning in to watch Mac Jones and Kyle Trask go head to head. Um, those guys have kind of gotten on the NFL radar. Obviously, we're going to be watching Trevor Lawrence go against Notre Dame. Is there a player out there that maybe we're not paying attention to yet that you think we're going to be paying attention to come March and April? Well, there would have been one in Georgia and JT Daniels if they were playing, but one quarterback that I would say that would recommend Saturday, I think at five, is tune into Cincinnati Tulsa. Um, Cincinnati's got a quarterback in Desmond Ritter. If you don't know much about him, um, he'll be the winningest quarterback in school history. He'll be undefeated this year um, if he wins this game. This is for the conference champion. Um, and, you know, he's a graduate. He's all these things. Um, reminds me a lot of Jordan Love, uh, except he's a much more dynamic runner. Jordan Love's not, much, not as much of a runner. Mm -hmm. uh, Desmond can roll and stop and start and cut back and spin and all that. So, um, He's the guy that's kind of really climbing up. I don't want to say climbing up draft boards because you and I both know those boards aren't built. But right. um, but he is a guy that is, you know, as I have conversations, I'm getting a lot of questions about him and a lot of people are starting to form opinions about him as to what he could be. And um, he has in front of him a chance here because he, he could come back too. I mean, he's not necessarily going to the NFL. I don't think he's announced anything yet. But he's got a chance to go undefeated, win the conference championship. And then in a bowl game, you know, Cincinnati may – it's entirely likely that they play a team like an SEC team, like a Georgia. Right. If they do, that means that he gets to show what he can do against an SEC team. And then he's one of those guys who's probably, if he comes out, he'd be on the cusp of maybe getting a senior bowl invite. And if he does, gets to go to Mobile and show what it looks like against the other competition. And, I mean, you know this as well as I do. Like, if you have that kind of year after that kind of career, and he, he just got named today uh, Conference Player of the Year, like mm -hmm. he started as rookie of the year, you know, conference rookie of the year. Now he's ending it this way. He's graduated. He's undefeated. And if you can kind of string that ending together, th that's how guys climb into the first round. And any questions that a Mac Jones is going to have about mobility or Kyle Trask is going to have about arm talent and they've had productivity, but any questions that are going to be asked about those guys in those categories, they are not going to be asked about Desmond Ritter in those categories because there's a change. He's actually the best athlete in this draft with one of the best releases and outside of Trevor Lawrence, the one with the most wins. So I don't know that that many people are diehard Cincinnati Bearcat fans around the country, but if you love football and your, your team may draft a quarterback next year and all that stuff, 
um, tune into the Cincinnati Tulsa uh, conference championship game. That's all. And that's why we have you on because you know, stuff like, and it's interesting too. You bring up Jordan love, like, and I know you said it at the end, but Jordan love was a tools guy, right? Like every tool that you want is there. So that's what, so Ritter has NFL tools is basically what you're telling everybody. Like, this is going to be a guy like, and we don't need to, you know, pull it back to Josh and, you know, the discussion about tools in 2018, but it's sort of that sort of guy where there's going to be a lot to work with whoever drafts him, whether it's in 2021 or 2022. Uh, yes, but also um, Luke Fickle, that coach there. Yeah, what they're doing with a run pass option and RPOs. They're like I think since University of Cincinnati has some of the best RPO game I've seen NFL or college, and I have a feeling that a lot of NFL teams when they break down Desmond Ritter, they're going to be looking at some of the concepts and the levels that they're getting to in the RPOs, um, and they're going to be stealing stuff from that school. So if that's the case, then teams that are looking to you know, develop their RPO game and all that. Like he's actually going to be really enticing because he's going to have in some cases more experience than the coaching staff has of the new team that he goes to. If he, if he goes to the league next year. So mm -hmm. there's also some things times have changed now, right? Everything used to go from NFL to college. Now a lot of it's going from college to the NFL. So a player like him entering in much like when Kyler Murray got to the Arizona Cardinals and essentially knew the playbook before yeah. Larry Fitzgerald. Um, it's not because Kyler's smarter, knows more football. It's that, they're running what he's been running now. And I just could see a lot of what Cincinnati's done and, and the way they've built it. Um, it really is pretty set up for, um, for quarterback to have success. It's fascinating too. Cause I, like I, somebody, you know, I, I make my phone calls on coaches and who could wind up, you know, where and everything else. And I had a couple people say to me, like, you know, like when the Celtics hired Brad Stevens from Butler, somebody potentially could look at Luke Fickle and say like, that's my Brad Stevens, you know, because of the way he's built the program there. And I just thought it was sort of an interesting comparison. Now hearing you say that makes me think it's not just the program building. Maybe there's some scheme stuff there too. And some innovation, which is really, I, I just think altogether kind of interesting. When, when a college coach takes over a program when he wins, cause he out recruits everybody like that says one thing to me, but when a college coach takes over a program and he changes the culture and the way that they run their offense and the structure of the defense and discipline. That's just something very different to me. And I don't think Luke Fickle has built that program off of recruiting. I think he's yeah. done it off of discipline, execution, innovation. Um, I think it'd be interesting to watch that guy's career as, as uh, you know, places like Auburn open up and I don't know anything, but uh, you know, as places like that open up coaches like that have bright futures and they have bright futures in the NFL as well. All right, Jordan, tell everybody where they can find you if they're looking for, for your stuff. They want more of this. Yeah, I, uh, uh, Jordan Palmer on Instagram. I'm not a big Twitter Twitter guy. Um, Jordan Palmer on Instagram. Um, and then qbsummit.com. Um, I run camps. I've got an online platform. Quarterbacks from all over the country and from actually a couple other countries um, are all part of my online platform. We've got content on there. We do weekly Zooms. And then um, I'm running a mechanics review right now where players submit content. I coached up virtually send it back. It's an eight week course. You will be throwing different at the end of the eight weeks. Um, and uh, I'm running a, a program right now and got a few spots left for that. So that's kind of the current state until uh, we start in January uh, draft training and, and then a big veteran off season. There you go. All right, Jordan, always appreciate you coming out. Um, he's Jordan Palmer. Go to qbsummit.com. You won't be disappointed. Appreciate it. Uh, appreciate it always, Jordan. We'll have you back soon. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. 
All right, thanks to Jordan. Great insight there on Josh Allen and Baker Mayfield. And remember that name, Desmond Ritter. That's an interesting one. Um, great quarterback at the University of Cincinnati the last couple of years, of course. We're going to jump into our fantasy segment now, brought to you by DraftKings. Get your DFS picks, get your fantasy picks for week 15. And to do that, we're bringing in, again, the originator of the Stardom Sidham column, 20 years going strong, SI.com's Michael Fabiano. Fabs, what's happening? Hey, buddy. How are you, man? Good, good, good. Well, let's start here. Uh, just because like this is my own like kind of like watching like like loving to watch the world burn um <laughs> kind of thing well you, uh, so, you, you must be loving 2020 then yeah yeah well i i don't love that stuff but there's sometimes, <laughs> sometimes you get your your, your 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 things that are maybe a little less disastrous that can mm-hmm. that can strike you the right way and uh so the josh jacobs thing did did that for me on sunday um uh, and i know there are a lot of people out there that didn't think it was funny um why don't you set the scene for people who don't know what happened with Josh Jacobs? And then uh, if there was any sort of follow-up for you, how you handled that, how uh, it affected the way you did your job on Sunday and maybe how it affected the fantasy world on Sunday. Well, everybody of course on Sundays who plays fantasy football is on social media mm-hmm. trying to get inactive reports and, you know, that kind of thing from, uh, from, you know, reporters like yourself and rap and, and, and Glazer and, and Shefty and everybody. So Jacobs had gone into the week sort of questionable, right? Uh, wasn't hundred percent had missed the previous week's game. So there were reports out there that he was expected to play. And of course, Josh Jacobs is going to be in everybody's lineup because he's Josh Jacobs. Josh Jacobs. So we get into Sunday and suddenly all over social media, you start seeing folks uh, tweeting out that Josh Jacobs has posted on social media to fantasy managers that he's not going to play. And so everyone's freaking out. So suddenly you're going to your lineup, you're taking Jacobs out. Maybe you're putting Devontae Booker or someone else in and it, it caused sort of a, a bit of a ruckus. Then the Raiders are going through pregame warmups and <laughs> Jacobs is doing all of the normal work. And then you start getting tweets from reporters who are saying, Jacob said he's not playing, but it looks like he's playing based on what he's doing in pregame. And inevitably he plays and he doesn't do anything. Again, right? I mean, the, the Colts, this, this the, is the four the, o'clock game too. Right, right. Exactly. And so, so, I mean, I would think most people were able to write the ship and put Jacobs back into their lineups. But I mean, you know, what happens if you set your lineup and then you, you know, you're, you're off and running somewhere, running errands, doing whatever you got to do, not really paying attention to your phone. You take Jacobs out and suddenly, Oh damn, he's, going to play. So I don't know what Josh was thinking. I've had a couple of interactions with Josh on, on Twitter. And I, I feel like he might be one of those players who doesn't like fantasy football because, and and I've, I've got relationships with players, former and current who who love fantasy. And then some who don't because they feel like fantasy football creates a, a sort of it's, it's a robotic sort of players are either in my lineup or not. They're not human. Right. And a lot of players don't like that. And I don't know if Josh falls into that category or not, but I'm not sure what he was thinking because players can hate fantasy. Right. And again, some do, some don't. Fantasy football is an avenue towards you making money and building up your name. I promise you. Nobody knew who the hell Cordero Patterson was before everyone was jumping on his bandwagon years ago before he ultimately busted with the Vikings. But fantasy is, is massive. I mean, 
you know, 50, 60 million people are playing. So, well, yeah, I mean, you can look at the NFL itself, right. it's investment into it. I don't uh, know. Yeah. I don't know what Jacobs was thinking, but whatever it is, what it is. And, and, and that's what he's going to be remembered for this season. It's like, it's just such a weird thing. Cause it's like, and it just sort of shows the control. And I, like, I, I, I got a question on this on my, in my mailbag this week mm-hmm. and I joked around a lot about it a little bit, but like the question was, is the league going to do something about this? And I said, I like, I want to say no. Like I want to say that they're going to let the players do whatever they want. But then I look at the investment the NFL has in it. And I yeah. look at like the way individual owners are invested in DraftKings, And like, I just like, look at like the importance, it, 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 the, the importance fantasy plays with reaching a younger generation, which is so hard to do. Like yep. the younger generation is very difficult to reach. It's been a challenge for all kinds of businesses mm-hmm. to reach the younger generation. And it, I, it wouldn't surprise me. Like uh, they can't do anything to Jacobs. There's no rule on the books, but it wouldn't surprise me if they have like, like there, maybe there's a little talking to that happens there. And I would think, yeah, maybe Mayock or, or Gruden or somebody talks to him. I'm yeah. sure that happened. Yeah. Right. So, you can't, you can't spread disinformation out there. Yeah. And, and there's some players who have been actually good about it. Right. I remember, I remember one time Roddy white tweeted out and said, Hey guys, don't play me this week. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to go, you know, like, yeah. I mean, and the information was kind of already out there, but it wasn't official. I mean, like that kind of thing, that's going to endear you to fantasy and fantasy football players are the most die hard football fans. They yeah. absorb the most content. They are the most dug in. You don't want to alienate that crowd. All right. So let's just jump in first to where we are right now. It's week 15 in the NFL season, which means semifinal week in most semifinals. That's leagues. right. Right. So, so in most leagues, there's four teams alive uh, right. trying to get to the finals. So what does this week look like for you? Um, and how do you think people should approach this week a little bit differently as owners? I, I would say a couple of things. Number one, you don't want to get too cute at this point. Okay. So so dance with it, the girl that brought you? Exactly. In yeah. most cases, Albert, there's going to be cases where that's not not, not necessarily the best case scenario here or, or the, the decision to make. Also, like the waiver wire is important. But I think this is what I'm doing. Instead of picking up guys that I really need, because at this point, I mean, I'm still alive in nine leagues. I don't need my starting lineup to be adjusted very much, right? Outside of maybe streaming defenses and kickers. How many leagues are you in total? 14. So nine out of 14 yourself. Yeah. So, okay. so we're doing all right. We're doing all right. Um, so I'm going and looking at who my opponent needs. So I'll give you an example. I'm in one league. My opponent's got Tom Brady, right? And I've got Aaron Rodgers. I've also got Ryan Tannehill. Well, I was thinking I could pick up, I don't know why T.Y. Hilton's available in this league. It's only a 10-team league. T.Y. is available and Jeff Wilson is available. Okay, And I don't know if Raheem Mostert's playing this week. It's the Cowboys and Wilson could be uh, in a smash spot. But my opponent could have used T.Y. and he could have used Jeff Wilson Jr. But based on my roster, I didn't have anybody to really that I could cut. Cut. Because I'm not cutting Ryan Tannehill because he could go and pick him up and play him against me because I like him better than Brady this week, right? So then I've got Hunter Henry and, and Robert Tunyon. I'm not playing Hunter Henry this week because Tunyon's on fire right now. Not that Henry's not a good play. So what I did was because the Chargers are playing on Thursday night, I decided to cut Henry because my opponents can't pick him up because he's going to be gone because the game will have been played. 
So I'm playing that kind of game now, right? Where like, not only am I picking up, you know, defenses and kickers that I can stream and then, uh, you know, like Lynn Bowden's a good pickup this week. Wilson's a good pickup this week, but like, I'm also trying to block what my opponent can potentially do to approve their team uh, for the upcoming week. So you, you got it. And, and typically that's something you're going to do uh, during the regular season as well. But most notably now when there's only, you know, three other teams making waiver claims at this point. Okay. Let's get into your picks then. The DFS bargains and fades for week 15 presented by DraftKings. Fabs, what you got? So Taysom Hill has got a really good matchup against the Chiefs. He's at $6,000, and it looks like he's going to be the guy. I don't think Breeze is coming back. Uh, Phillip Rivers, $5,900 is a good play against the Texans. Remember, I like Mitchell Trubisky last week, and I was like, I know it's Mitchell Trubisky, but, I mean, he had a big game. He's got the Vikings this week at $5,500. At running back, I mentioned Raheem Mostert. He's at 58. Jeff Wilson's at 51. If Mostert can't go, Wilson's a bargain at $5,100. J.D. McKissick kind of stunk last week, but Alex Smith appears to be projected to go this week, uh, and the Seahawks are uh, a softer defense. So I think at 58, he's a good bargain. Kenyon Drake against the Eagles is a good bargain at 55. I've been giving you T.Y. for three weeks in a row, man. Let's make it four against the Texans, who he dominates at $5,500. Antonio Brown, who tied Mike Evans for the Buccaneers team lead in targets last week at 54 against Atlanta. Now, Lynn Bowden on DraftKings is a wide receiver. On NFL.com, he's a running back. And on ESPN and Yahoo, he's got dual eligibility. But he's a wide receiver on DraftKings. He's $3,600. If Parker's out or limited and all those running backs are out again, Lynn Bowden is certainly in the mix. At tight end, Tyler Higby's really had one good game all year but he's $3,800 and the Jets stink. So you can roll with him $3,600 for Irv Smith if Kyle, uh, Kyle Ruff does not go. And then Hayden Hurst at $3,300 if Julio Jones can't go this week. Uh, the fades, this is a big Russell Wilson at $7,300 on the road against Washington. That's a lot, man. Washington's defense is good. So I'm going to I'm gonna fade that. Deshaun Watson against the Colts at $6,800. I faded him for three straight weeks now. Uh, Kirk Cousins against the Bears at 61 James Robinson against the Ravens at 71, although the Ravens, they they got boat raced by Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt last week. So it's not a bad matchup. You're playing them, obviously, in redraft, but 71's a lot. Zeke at 61. Uh, Clyde Edwards-Hilaire uh, at 5,800. I don't like Tyler Lockett this week at 67 against the football team. Devontae Parker, assuming he goes against the Patriots, is a fade at $5,900. DJ Chark against the Ravens at five grand is a fade. Logan Thomas, Johnny Smith, and Zach Ertz also uh, on my DraftKings fade list. And it's interesting too. I know people listening out there can't see this. It's not video podcast. I think we might get the YouTube thing going soon, <laughs> but for right now it's not. But what I've been looking at all year over Fabs' right oh shoulder Cowboys is crap. Zeke Elliott jersey. And he has been crushing my man, Zeke, all year long. I'm unbiased, man. I love the Cowboys. I love them. Yeah. I, I'm unbiased, dude. The, the yeah. team is not good right now. No, it's not very good. All right. As we say every week, as we said a couple minutes ago, Fabs is the original author of the Stardom Sidham column. Again, 20 years strong. Who you got to Stardom Sidham for week 15 and week two of the fantasy playoffs in most leagues? Yeah, man. So let's start off with the quarterbacks and Ryan Tannehill, uh, who had a couple of touchdowns last week. The fantasy points weren't enormous, uh, but he didn't kill you. He's got the Lions this week. Start him. Taysom Hill is a start. So is Tom Brady against Atlanta. Jared Goff, like, and I don't like Jared Goff. I'm sure he's a wonderful human being. I don't like him as a fantasy player, but the Jets, I mean, he's he's a top 12 play this week. Uh, Phillip Rivers as well. Running backs to start. Jonathan Taylor, smashing 
lately. He's got the Texans. David Montgomery, smashing lately. He's got the Vikings. Cam Akers finally gets a featured role. Alleluia. He's got the Jets this week. Start him. Mike Davis will go for Carolina against the Packers. Start him. And then whoever the Niners running back is, right? If it's Mostert or if it's Wilson, start uh, him against the Cowboys. Uh, speaking of the Niners, Brandon Ayuk, in the last two weeks, no wide receiver has more targets. Like He's bananas good and Debo Samuel's out and the Cowboys are terrible. Uh, Terry McLaurin had become a must start. He's had two bad games in a row. I'd still play him against Seattle. Deontay Johnson, dropsies, right? I would think, Albert, he learned his lesson because uh, he got benched on national television. So he's got the Bengals this week. I mean, I'm still playing Deontay Johnson. T.Y. Hilton, Corey Davis also in play at wide receiver. At tight end, Robert Tunyon. I mean, this is kind of a chalk play, but we, we are in the semifinals of the playoffs. Uh, he's been great. Four straight games with a touchdown. Evan Ingram stunk last week. I still like him against the Browns. Eric Ebron also stunk last week. I like him against the Bengals. Rob Gronkowski, the snaps weren't there. And most of the snaps that he played resulted in a running play. I'm still playing him against Atlanta. The defense is bad against tight ends. So, uh, sit him quarterbacks. Tua was a monster last week. I'm not playing him against the Patriots, and I'm not playing Cam Newton in that game as well. Baker has been awesome. And I don't love Baker as a fantasy quarterback, and I'll give him all the credit in the world. He's been awesome. The Giants are really tough on quarterbacks, though, folks. So, uh, beware Baker Mayfield. Matt Ryan's been an absolute disaster for the last month. I can't play him against the Bucs. Uh, Kirk Cousins is also a sit him this week against the Bears. At running back, I got some big names on here, brother. Todd Gurley's done. I, he's done. Thank you, for, thank you for all of your great fantasy work in L.A. And actually, earlier this season, he wasn't bad at all as an RB2. He's done. Like, he's not yeah. even rosterable in some leagues. I caught him. Zeke, I get it. You probably have to play him. He had fewer points than Tony Pollard last week. He split touches with Tony Pollard last week. Tony Pollard's the better running back right now. I hate to say it. He looks more explosive. I mean, I hate to, I hate to say it because I think Zeke was the best running back in the league for a couple yeah. of years. But, like, it looked like Pollard had a little a little more juice. He I did. And, yeah. and, and, and the Niners are good against the run. So, like, Zeke mm -hmm. is a sit for me. And so is Clyde Edwards-Hilaire. No team in the National Football League has given up fewer fantasy points to visiting running backs than New Orleans, and I think they've only given up one touchdown or an opposing running back. And Edwards Alaire in has New been Orleans, pointing to like yeah, I, yeah, ever since Albert, he was he was on pace to be a top twelve back, and then they signed Le'Veon Bell, and it all went to hell. So, um, boy, I, I rhymed there. I'm a poet and didn't know it. Uh, whoever the Texans running back is, I'm sitting against the Colts. It looks like it's going to be David, but regardless. And then Gio Bernard. I mean, last week he couldn't do anything against the Cowboys. They were using Samaje P. Ryan for crying out loud and Trayvon Williams. So uh, Gio's out at wide receiver. I will tell you again, don't get cute. Okay, don't get cute. But Tyler Lockett has been super unreliable and Washington has been nasty good against slot receivers. Just saying, beware Tyler Lockett. Tyler Boyd's a fade for me against the Steelers. So is DJ Chark against the Ravens. I like Jamison Crowder last week, and then the injury popped up, and he didn't do much. I don't like him against the Rams. There's not one Jet you could play this week. Not one. None. Not, not even in the 2QB league when I start Sam Donald. No. Not going there. Uh, CeeDee Lamb, disappointing without Dak. I'd sit him. And then at tight end, Logan Thomas, who's been really good the last couple of weeks. He's like a low-end tight end one. Seattle's been really good against tight ends, and that's all about yep. Jamal Adams in the Ball middle Adams, of that defense. Yep. Uh, Jared Cook, Zach Ertz, and Dalton Schultz also on my Fades list. And it's amazing to think how quick things change, Fabs, because Gurley and Zeke were probably top three picks in fantasy drafts two years ago. And it's just that position. Oh. It's and you, crazy. Know what, you know what, though, Albert? Next year, 
when the Cowboys have Dak back and hopefully, you know, the offensive line will be intact, they'll maybe make some smart picks in the draft and improve the line and the defense. Zeke will be a top five overall pick. I, I think Zeke's like still like, no, I don't think washed, I, I, I'm with you. Like, I think Gurley's done. Like, I think Gurley's no, done. Gurley's done. Gurley's done. Yeah. Like, I think Zeke still has something left and yeah. just contractually, they got to hang on to him for another year. I, I'll be interested to see if he takes the results this year personally, the way that he approaches going right. into 2021, because I do think that there are some subtle changes he can make to make himself more productive next year. Babs, maybe, maybe lose a little weight in the offseason. Yeah, yeah, I mean, we've, like we've, we've, we've seen some we've seen some fluctuation there in the past. By the uh, way, that, did you did you see the James Harden photos on Twitter overnight? No, those can't be real. Or, did you he see have like a he looks now? like Sean Kemp. Like no when way. Sean Kemp got fat. So the first thing I'm going to do after we get off recording this is to Google James Harden look images. Like that's that's amazing. This is this is while he's like demanding a tra- like not only demanding a trade, like I'll only go to these teams. Like uh, wow. Like I don't trust That'd be anything. bad development for him. Right. That'd be really bad trust, development for him. I don't trust anything on social media. I mean, outside of the, you know, the reporters and the folks that I know are out there telling the truth. So like I I take everything with a grain of salt, but there were some photos out there where he was looking he was looking a little little chubby. A little wow. jolly like Santa. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Let's check How it out. That? How about yeah. that? I'm definitely a check. There's some fantasy basketball tip for you too, right? Like we got some, <laughs> we got some fantasy basketball scoop from Fabs too. Always appreciate you coming out Fabs. Merry Christmas to you and your family. All right, brother. You too. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks to Jordan. Thanks to Fabs. We're going to wrap things up the same way we always do, which is with the six pack. You guys know how this works. Every Tuesday, I put the call out for questions on Twitter, answer some of the video mailbag, answer some of the print mailbag, but I pick six very special ones to answer right here on the pod. That's a six pack. Question number one for week 15 is from Michael Christopher. That's at big dogs with a Z one, three, one, eight, who is a more generational prospect in terms of draft and value to a team Zion Williamson or Trevor Lawrence. And would you be in favor of an NFL draft lottery, which would eliminate any team or fan base talking about tanking? Let's answer the first part of your question. I think Trevor Lawrence, like from a football perspective is a better prospect than Zion Williams. It's Williamson is from a basketball prospect. Like this is, this is LeBron James. I'll put it that way. This is a once in a decade type of prospect. So like if you want to go down the line and look at, and again, this isn't guaranteeing that what he's going to be for the next 15 years. It's just what he is right now coming out. Like John Elway, Peyton Manning, Andrew Luck, and Trevor Lawrence. Now, again, some guys exceed expectations. We've seen what Tom Brady has become. We've seen what Patrick Mahomes is becoming. So it's not a guarantee you're getting the best player in the sport. It's just what they're thought of at the time that they're entering the league. And Trevor Lawrence is in that category, which is why I think, you know, somebody like LeBron James would be the right comparison, a true once in a decade prospect. Now, again, I don't cover the NBA. I don't know. I know Zion Williamson seen as a freak and a really, really great prospect. Is he a once in a decade type of guy? I didn't get that feeling, and I follow the NBA fairly closely. I didn't get the feeling that he's like once in a decade, once in every 10 years, whereas I think Trevor Lawrence absolutely is, and the importance of the quarterback position at the NFL takes that to another level. The second part of your question, I'd love an NFL draft lottery. I think the idea of it's really good. I think it'd be fun. It would create more content for the NFL. 
I know why the NFL doesn't do it because they prioritize uh, they prioritize over almost anything else um, parity. They want teams to be able to rise and fall at the drop of a hat. They want everybody to be in it for as much of the year as they possibly can every year. And so, like, parity is paramount, and the best way to create parity is to give the worst teams access to the best players from a draft perspective. I think they also feel like putting in a lottery would acknowledge the presence of tanking, and I know that they don't want to do that. So I don't think it happens, but, God, it would be fun if it did. Question number two from RB, that's at sports underscore fiend. What three positions as far as draft prospects should the Jets focus on after selecting a quarterback with the very first pick in the first round? That's a good question, RB. I've jotted down three positions for you. Number one, offensive line. I think they need to continue to improve on the offensive line. I think it's important that they create a good environment for their young quarterback. Presumably, it'll be Trevor Lawrence. And one of the things you see in common with all of the great young quarterbacks of the last few years, they all had really good offensive lines and in particular, good tackle situations. Carson Wentz, uh, when he was nearly the MVP of the league in 2017, his second year, he was playing behind Jason Peters and Lane Johnson. Patrick Mahomes in 2018, when he won the MVP, was playing behind Eric Fisher and Mitch Schwartz. And Lamar Jackson last year, when he won MVP, was playing behind uh, Ronnie Stanley and Orlando Brown. So that situation you have in the offensive line is important. They got a good building block in Mekhi Becton last year. They need more on the offensive line, and I think the best place to get it is in the draft. So offensive line is one of those. I'm not saying you need to go first round with it, but offensive line is one. Another one is defensive end. They've had a crying need for an edge rusher for there forever. This isn't the best year as far as edge rushers go, but if you can add a piece – on the edge for yourself, I think you'd be doing well to do that if you're the Jets. And the other one's been a need for quite some time, really since Darrell Revis. Um, Darrell Revis's career went the wrong way, and that's the cornerback position. So those three spots, all premium spots, offensive line, defensive line, defensive end, and corner for the New York Jets. Question number three from Matt Ramos. That's at Matt underscore Ramos. Inter- interesting comments you shared this week from coaches and scouts on Cam Newton. Assuming the past don't re-sign him, who will be under center for them next year? I wouldn't assume they aren't going to re-sign him. I do think that there are reasons why Cam Newton's played the way that he has. Number one, he was out of football for a year and a half. Number two, the talent around him isn't very good. Number three, the talent around him hasn't allowed them to play offense the way that I think they need to be playing offense. He was in the gun. He was in the spread for most of his football life until this year. They're playing under center and with two backs more. It's just... I, like, I just don't think that they've ever gotten that part of it quite right. So I wouldn't assume that he's going to be gone. But if he is gone, Matthew Stafford, if he becomes available, he's got background in your program. He's got background in your system. I think he would be a perfect sort of fit for the next three or four years, give you some some stability. The position also allow you to take your time in finding the next guy, finding that young guy. Stafford's not that young anymore. He's going to be 33 next year, but I think he'd be an interesting option for you. Um, then the other one would be Jimmy Garoppolo. And that, again, is going to be determined on whether or not he's available in the first place and what the Niners decide to do with the position. My feeling is that the Niners are going to look at upgrades, um, but they are comfortable going forward with Jimmy Garoppolo. So no sure thing he becomes available. And if you want a dark horse there, Jacoby Brissett, um, he come, you know, obviously he's been in Indianapolis the last few years, but I think he's shown he can be a functional NFL quarterback and could be a guy that you at least have as a bridge um, or an option 
there with you know you, where you know exactly what you're getting. So those three would be um, three veterans I would look at. Obviously, the draft's going to be an option, um, and we'll see where that goes. Um, it looks like they're going to be picking somewhere in the middle of the first round, uh, probably not in the top dozen or so picks, which I think will probably rule out the champ. I know it'll rule out Lawrence and Fields, probably rule out Zach Wilson for them as an option too. Um, Trey Lance, I don't think would fall that far. So now we're talking about Mac Jones or Kyle Trask, barring a trade up. It's a weird spot to be in. So I think that they have to go into the off season with an open mind. Question number four from not who you think I am. Our buddy at Don Ridnauer. Do you think Dak is having any second thoughts about the Cowboys organization? Don, no, I do not. I, I think he loves being a cowboy. I think he really likes the the benefits that come along with it. I think he's been able to make a lot of money um, from a non-football standpoint in ways that you wouldn't be able to make money if you were, say, the quarterback of the Falcons or the quarterback of the Lions or the quarterback of the Broncos. Uh, it's just, it's you know, it's like Jerry Jones says, you know, you're the shortstop of the Yankees if you're the quarterback of the Cowboys. And so I think Dak's seen a lot of benefit from that. I also think they've done a decent job putting talent around him. Now, obviously, this year things came undone a bunch. But for the most part, he's played behind one of the best offensive lines in football. And they've continued to try to upgrade the skill positions. We see it with CeeDee Lamb this year. They went and made the move for Amari Cooper a couple of years ago. Um, you know, Zeke Elliott, I think you make the argument. Now, he hasn't played great this year, but maybe the best back in football the last five years. Um, it's a good situation around him. So I know the contractual situation is what it is, but there's been a lot of good, too, in Dak Prescott's situation in Dallas, and I do think they'll find a way to get him done um, going into the 2021 season. Question number five from Aaron Bursky. That's at A. Bursky. Have you heard anything about Wade Phillips having interest in the Raiders DC position next year? And do you think that would be a good hire? It's being reported locally that he is intrigued with the young talent on that side of the ball, as well as reuniting with Corey Littleton and LaMarcus Joyner. I think Wade Phillips would love the idea of coaching in Vegas and coaching with John Gruden next year. I'm just not sure that John Gruden doesn't like the idea going forward with Rob Marinelli. Part of the problem with uh, with Paul Gunther, and I think Paul Gunther's a really good coach, um, part of the problem with Paul Gunther, he runs that Mike Zimmer system. It's a little more complex. They were trying to infuse young talent on that side of the ball. They've spent a lot of young a lot of draft capital on young defensive players. Guys like Trayvon Mullen, guys like Clellan Farrell, guys like Max Crosby and Damon Arnett. Um, Jonathan Abram, obviously. And so, you know, I think part of it is, you know, if you're going to be very young on defense, it's hard to also be complex. And so Rob Marinelli's traditionally run a fairly simple, straightforward, fundamental-based scheme. And I think that that's sort of why they did this when they did it. And I think going forward, that's what they'll be looking for, which, I again, that could be a plus as far as hi hiring Wade, too. He's always been able to get, like, immediate results wherever he's gone on the defensive side of the ball. I just think that there was a very targeted reason why you went to Rod Marinelli, why you hired him in the first place as sort of a, 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 like an escape hatch if you, if you wanted to get out from underneath Paul Gunther. And that reason sort of stands as a reason why you would go forward with him as well. Question number six, last question of the week from Daniel Trugman. That's at D Trugman two. What was the thing behind starting NFL Saturday behind starting NFL Saturdays the same day as the NCAA conference championship games? It seems like nobody wins here except maybe viewers with short attention spans. Well, I got to tell you, I win because I got multiple TVs in my office now, which is fantastic. I'd recommend that to anyone. Um, you know, so I will be watching on Saturday. 
the early NFL game up against the ACC championship game and then the late NFL game up against the SEC championship game should be a blast to be able to take all of that in at once. But this wasn't planned. Um, this normally wouldn't be the cha- conference championship weekend. In fact, conference championship weekend would have been two weeks ago in a normal year. And so part of why you do this, like they don't want to interfere with the conference championship games. They don't want to interfere with the army Navy game and the Heisman ceremony. They generally, generally would want to have the Saturday game start right after all of that, which is where it was scheduled to be. Obviously COVID and everything going on with the individual conferences pushed all of this back. And that's why you have the situation that you have right now, just sort of a product of COVID-19 and the 2020 season on both levels. Appreciate you guys coming out. You guys know where to get to me. You can always get to me on my social media channels at Albert Breer on Twitter, at Albert R. Breer on Facebook, at Albert underscore Breer on Instagram. Give us your feedback. We'll incorporate it into what we do. We want to continue to make the podcast better as we get into the playoffs. And of course, what should be a very eventful 2021 season, off season, And always remember to listen to all of our podcasts, Connor and Jenny's podcast on Tuesdays, Gary's podcast on Monday mornings, the Gambling Gambling Podcast on Fridays. There are three different podcast feeds now. Of course, you guys know my feed if you've gotten this deep into the podcast. I'm subscribing. You're subscribing, I'm sure. So that's the Albert Breer Show. You can also get the MMQB podcast feed and the Weekside podcast feed right there where you get the Albert Breer podcast feed. you got to hit subscribe three times now. But you can find us on Spotify, Stitcher, Google, Google Play, TuneIn, Apple Podcasts, wherever you guys get your shows. And help us out by leaving us a rating and review on iTunes. I'm told that that really helps. Same time next week. We'll see you guys then.